Good afternoon. Everyone, I would like to welcome all of you to the second in the President's Lectures this year. This lecture series uh, was the idea of my friend and colleague, Ellen Kruger, in the Department of Economics, who over the summer suggested to me that while Princeton had so many opportunities to hear distinguished scholars from outside the university, there were not many opportunities in which we could actually celebrate the distinction of our own faculty. And it was out of that wonderful suggestion that Alan, together with a small group of faculty that I brought together to help me think through how we could, in fact, celebrate our own faculty, uh, including uh, David Wilkinson from the Department of Physics, and uh, Angela Krager uh, from the History of Science. And who else was in that group, Ellen? I think, I think that was it. Coupled with uh, Kathy Rohr uh, from the Dean of the Faculty's Office and Ann Halliday uh, from my office, uh, we uh, collectively came to the conclusion that having a lecture series three times a year uh, would be a wonderful thing. And for those of you who heard Carol Emerson last month, I think you would all agree uh, that uh, hearing our own faculty is, in fact, an extraordinary opportunity to celebrate what is so important about this university. The second lecture today is going to be given by Professor Angus Deaton, who will be introduced by Professor Chris Paxson, who is the Professor of Economics and Public Affairs. Uh, Chris is a perfect person to introduce Professor Deaton, uh, partly because she is the director of the Center for Research on Health and Well-Being, and because she has collaborated extensively with Professor Deaton over the years. Her own research interests are in the area of applied economics and developmental economics, She's currently working on the effects of demographic change and population aging in Asia, the relationship between economic status and health outcomes in adulthood and childhood, and the effects of economic fluctuations and welfare policy on child maltreatment. Professor Paxson. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Um, I am very pleased to introduce Professor Angus Deaton, who will talk today on inequality, health, and wealth. Before he starts, I wanted to give those of you in the audience who don't know Angus a, a broader sense of the diverse set of issues um, that he's researched over his career and the contributions that he's made to Princeton and to economics more generally. Angus is the Dwight D. Eisenhower Professor of International Affairs. He's been teaching at Princeton in the Economics Department in the Woodrow Wilson School since 1983. Angus is an applied econometrician who has worked for many years on the empirical analysis of household behavior in both developed and developing countries. He is very prolific. He has authored or co-authored four books and many journal articles on a wide range of topics including savings behavior, commodities markets, issues in public finance, poverty, price indices, education, and more recently on health. His research has led to involvement in several very real policy issues, 
in the United States, where he served on National Academy panels on poverty and on price and cost of living index numbers, and in India, where he's been involved in the politically sensitive issue of poverty measurement. Not surprisingly, his research has led to numerous honors and awards. For instance, Angus was the first recipient of the Frisch Medal. He's a fellow of the Econometric Society and of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Angus's research has a very distinctive style. And I think one thing that I like the best about it is, no matter what research question or theory he's investigating, his goal is to really find out what's in the data, using the empirical methods that are best suited to the research question and the data at hand. What you get when you read one of Angus's papers is a straightforward and very honest accounting of the evidence presented in an informative and creative way and always on an interesting topic. Angus has been an extremely successful advisor of graduate students, especially in the area of development economics. The field of economic development at Princeton, which had languished prior to Angus's arrival, emerged as an active area of research for our graduate students, and Princeton since then has become known as one of the very best places to study development economics in the world. Angus's work has had a profound influence on the way that research and development is done, and this influence extends past his own students. Several of his books have become, in a sense, Bibles for empirical researchers, and when I go and give seminars at other universities, it's not unusual to see you know, a dog-eared copy of one of his, Angus's books sitting out on somebody's desk. I think that his success as a researcher, a teacher, and as a colleague can be best explained by an enormous intellectual curiosity and love for learning about new things. Some of the best days I've had at Princeton are when Angus will come bursting into my office clutching several sheets of paper. And these could be you know, equations that set out a model. They could be graphs of data. They could be some regression results. And he'll say, hey, I found out something really interesting. And when that happens, I know it's time to put down whatever I'm doing and listen because Chances are whatever he has to say will be very well worth listening to. Um, and with that, I'd like to turn over the floor to Angus. Thank you very much, Chris. Um, I don't quite know how I follow an introduction like that. Um, I'd certainly like to start by thanking you. Um, and not only for your very generous introduction, but also for being such a wonderful collaborator on so many projects over the years. And most recently, um, for your leadership of the new Center for Health and Wellbeing. Um, the center's only been running for a couple of years, and it's part of the expansion of the research side of the Woodrow Wilson School under Mike Rothschild's leadership. Much of the work that I will be talking about today um, was done within the center and with other center members. Important participants in the wor this work, apart from Chris, have been Anne Case, Darren Lobotsky, and Adriana Yarasmuni, I think all of whom are here today. I'm going to talk about why rich people live longer than poor people, why their lives are less full of sickness and suffering, and what we can and should do about it. Let me start with some facts always a good place to start. We can look at the relationship between health and wealth from a historical perspective, as well as contemporaneously, both across and within countries. So I'm going to start with some of the history. Um, perhaps the most familiar part of the story 
is what has happened over time in the United States. Over the years from 1929 to 1999, real GDP per head grew at about 2.2% a year on average. From 1900 to 1996, life expectancy at birth increased by about 0.3 years per year from 47.3 in 1900 to 76 in 1996. That's about a decade of extra life for each generation. For each doubling of GDP per head over the century, life expectancy increased by about 10 years. Now, as I shall have several occasions to say this afternoon, correlation is not causation. Nevertheless, the association between health and wealth holds not only historically in the U.S. and in other now-rich countries, but between poor and rich countries now. So let me move to this graph, which combines the historical and international evidence. This picture shows the relationship between life expectancy at birth and income per head. Income per head is measured in international, what are called international dollars. You can think of each of these dollars as representing the purchasing power of American dollar in 1991. On the vertical axis, let's see if this pointer works. That's sort of up here. This shows um, life expectancy um, at birth, which is the measure of health um, in this picture. And on the horizontal axis along here, we have um, the income per head. Um, here, my measure of wealth. So this is a sort of illustration of health versus wealth. Each point um, is a separate country in a particular time period, and different colors indicate different time periods. So what we have here is a series of international comparisons in different times. These curves are often known as Preston curves after Sam Preston, um, who first drew them in the early 1970s. This recent version here is taken from the World Bank's development report of 1993. There are four periods shown in the graph. About 1900, the green points, although there aren't very many of them. 1930 um, in red, that's these points in here. 1960 in blue. And 1990, which are the pink curves, um, the pink points on top. Poor countries, which are those over the left, very low income per head, um, are, have low life expectation. Even in 1990, there are several mostly African countries where life expectancy at birth is less than 50 years. And indeed, for several of these, mostly in Africa, where life, um, um, AIDS has made matters even worse over the last decade. Richer countries do better on average than poorer ones, although an important feature of this curve is how much flatter they become as we move to the right. Income seems to matter much more for the poor countries than for the rich ones, although the slope is still positive among the rich countries, just flatter, not flat. The second important point about these curves is that they move up over time. In 1900, with an income of about $5,000 a head, you would have expected to have a life expectancy of around 55 years. By 1990, an income of $5,000 a head which then was a poor country, no, sorry, then was a rich country, now is a poor country, 
would have given you a life expectancy of around 70 years. Even with an increase in national income, life, sorry, even with no increase in national income, life expectancy increased. Now, if health were determined entirely by income, we would not expect this to happen. The curve would remain fixed, and countries would move along it as they got richer. But as the curves move up, it is possible for countries, perhaps especially those in the middle, to get healthier without any increase in incomes. Clearly, there are important determinants of health other than income. New drugs and treatments, for example, the availability of cheap antibiotics and vaccines, as well as better knowledge about public health, sanitation, and clean water, they all save lives and can do so even when incomes are low. Even so, and as Preston pointed out from the very beginning, the biggest non-income-related health gains between 1930 and 1960s happened not in the poorest countries, but in the middle-income countries. You need some of the things, some money, or at least some of the things that go with money, such as organization or education, to implement the public health reforms. This raises an important theme in the literature, that of collective action exemplified by public health versus private action as exemplified by the health and nutritional benefits of each individual being better off. Public wealth matters as well as does private wealth. The third and final important point about this picture is that countries do not lie perfectly along the lines. Some have high life expectancy relative to their incomes, and some have very low life expectancy. Wealth and health, although strongly related, are far from perfectly related. This is worth keeping in mind because we really care about both. We want people to be both healthy and wealthy, and we cannot rely on one measure alone to gauge their well-being. Now, my first two slides have demonstrated that over time and over countries, health is related to wealth. Differences in wealth are mirrored in differences in health. Or to put it in a different way that we often hear in the literature, health inequalities mirror wealth inequalities. But what about in a moment of time? If money can't buy happiness, perhaps it can buy longevity. As we're often told, you can't take your money with you, but perhaps you can use it to postpone the moment of your departure. The question is, can one pay death to go away? Well, here's a picture um, um, by Hans Holbein, um, which shows something of the sort. Um, the rich man is handing over um, bundles of coins to death and sort of waving him away and saying, here, um, let me use my money. I'll have a few more years, please. Um, in fact, the, this picture, which is Holbein's 1538 version of Death and the Miser, actually illustrates not my point at all, but something pretty much its opposite. The miser who's at the point of death is actually more concerned with his money than with anything else. And he's actually raising his hands in horror at death, daring not to take him away, but to make off with his money. His money is, in fact, no good to him at all. But in contemporary America, perhaps the miser might have done better. People with money actually do keep the reaper at bay for longer. Let me show you some real data. So the next slide um, shows um, my third picture, um, which looks at this more or less in contemporary America. On the vertical axis here, um, we've got the probability of dying over a nine-year period 
for someone aged 55. So that's 5% at the bottom, up to 25% um, at the top. Um, we've got the line up here for males, um, the line at the bottom for females, and these are um, whites. These data come from the National Longitudinal Mortality Survey, um, which inc surveyed people's incomes around 1980 and then tracked the people for a little over 3,000 days. And at the end of that period, we know everybody who died, everybody who's still alive, and for the ones who died, when they died, and what they died of. Um, just to give you some idea of how many data points are in here, I used 160,000 men and 160,000 women um, to construct um, this picture. Now, the, I've illustrated this for 55-year-olds. Um, obviously, one of the important things about mortality is it depends a lot on age, and you have to correct for that in some way or other. And so I've chosen to show this at age 55. For older people, the curves would be further up. For younger people, the curves would be further down. But they move up more or less in parallel over much of the age range. Not for children, but um, over much of the adult age range. Now what we see here is that men in the bottom group, that would be this yellow circle up here, those are people whose family income was less than $5,000 a year in 1980 which, if you want to think of what that means, that was in the bottom 5% of the income distribution, were about twice as likely to die in the nine-year follow-up as these guys here, who were in the group that had more than $50,000 in 1980. So there's a doubling in the risk of mortality as you move from the top of the income distribution, top 5%. We're not talking about Bill Gates here, down to the bottom 5% here. The, um, for women, whose mortality is a good deal lower than men, um, there is also a reduction in mortality rates with income, although the difference between poor women and rich women is not as large as that for men. This phenomenon, that the wealthy are less likely to die than the poor, is often referred to as the gradient, which is a term I will use. It's a graded diminution in mortality with income, or indeed with other measures of wealth, or with education, or pretty much any measure of socioeconomic status. Note also, this is again very important, that the curves are indeed curves, not straight line. As with the cross-country Preston curves, extra income matters more at the bottom of the income distribution than it does at the top, although it still matters at the top. Extra income is associated with a greater increase in health when you are poor than when you are rich. But it is not true that the effects of income only work among the poor. The slope is still there at the top. Indeed, if we were to convert this to a logarithmic scale, the proportional effect of income um, in reducing mortality is about the same at the top of the income distribution as it is at the bottom of the income distribution. This picture also shows another important aspect of health inequalities, one not associated with money, which is the inequality in mortality between men and women. At the same level of family income, women are about half as likely to die as men. For a man, moving from the bottom of the income distribution to the top of the income distribution is about as good for his life's chances as a sex change, at least <laughs> if you could do that without deleterious consequences. Note finally 
that the curvature for women only looks less than the curvature for men. That's really a matter of a choice of scale. And if I rescaled the female curve, put it on its own axis, the curvature would look very same. Although note once again that the effects on mortality of additional family income are stronger for men than for women, and one of the many things that we do not understand. So these are the facts. What should we make of them? Well, this is when things get sort of complicated. Um, many people um, find these health inequalities are unfair and unjust and feel that it should be an important aim of public policy to reduce or eliminate them. Notice that this is even true of many people who don't quibble too much about the distribution of income. They may think the distribution of income or the distribution of wealth would be better if it were narrower, but they sort of accept it as the way we do business. Um, it's perhaps a necessary evil. But many of those people who accept widening or the distribution of income are not prepared to accept inequality in life chances by income groups. Now, it's the immediately preceding slide, the one I showed you last, and um, which shows contemporary America, that seems to evoke the greatest discomfort. Although it's not entirely clear why. Is it less unjust that people in India have lower life chances than people in the U.S.? That seems like an injustice, too. But maybe we think we understand better the difference between the U.S. and India and know how hard it is to do anything about it. After all, we'd really like to go back and help out our grandparents and great-grandparents and give them longer and better lives. They had much shorter lives than we do. And it may indeed be unjust that we are treated much better than they were. But there's really not very much we can do about it at this point in time. So we can redistribute money across countries, albeit with a great deal of difficulty. Um, there's the old quip that foreign aid is a transfer from poor people in rich countries to rich people in poor countries. And we can redistribute money between people in our own country, perhaps more readily. But we cannot redistribute money um, from now back into the past. All of this suggests that our feelings of justice about the facts that I've shown depend on where they come from and on the possibilities and consequences of trying to do something about them. And this is the issue that I will work up to towards the end. Even so, it's very important to note that the arguments for redistribution towards the poor are much reinforced by the existence of the gradient the correlation between health and wealth. Well-being is broader than just having a lot of stuff. It also involves health and other things, too. So if it turns out that people who are deprived in one dimension also tend to be deprived in the other, the poor are doubly deprived, and those of us who are not poor are doubly blessed. These are arguments not just for improving health or improving the health of the poor, but of improving the well-being of the poor, whether through income redistribution or health policy or both. But we must never confuse well-being with health by itself or with wealth by itself. Both are important. Here's the second argument that is often made. If the poor have worse health than the rich, then by focusing on them, we focus on where the sickness is and where we can do the most good. Health inequalities, according to this argument, are not only unjust, um, but they're inefficient. Um, that's where we can do the most good if we can do something about this. 
The problem, of course, is that it's not obvious that that argument is necessarily true. These inequalities may be very difficult to correct. And it's the inequality, just as are the inequalities in health between India and the U.S., for example. And if we don't understand what generates the inequalities in the first place, we should design policy with a great deal of caution. All right, so this raises the issue. If health is related to money, can we make people healthier by giving them more money? That is surely true in some cases, especially in situations where people or their children do not have enough to eat or live in communities so poor as to lack clean water or basic sanitation. This all may seem obvious, but in many and perhaps most countries, the matter is not usually thought about this way. Indeed, health is the domain of the health services, while making people richer is the domain of the finance minister, economic growth, and economic policy. And those two things are very rarely thought about together. Which means that some very important questions don't get asked, such as whether it might be better to give money to people, for example, to feed their kids, than to spend money on inefficient systems of public health, and particularly in countries where clinics and health care are poorly administrated or even corrupt. In rich countries, we face many of the same trade-offs, for example, between Medicare and Social Security, or between providing health insurance or trying to provide income supports through the um, Earned Income Tax Credit, for example. In any case, because money or income isn't just freely available um, from anywhere, giving more of it to someone means taking it away from someone else. So the real question is usually not whether we should give money, but whether we should redistribute money. And of course, once you put the word redistribute in, you raise a very different set of political issues from issues of simply giving people money. Now, to many people, it's obvious that redistribution will improve population health. But in fact, as we'll see, it's not obvious. It's not even obvious that it's true. And it's the central topic of the rest of this lecture. Now, here's the argument for income. This is that ultimately, disease is not to do with germs, um, but with the structure of society. In particular, economic and social structure, especially low income, income inequality, discrimination, and social exclusions, are regarded as the ultimate causes of causes of disease. Many writers would confine this argument to rich countries where poorly understood chronic diseases, particularly heart disease and cancers, are the leading cause of death, but more radical voices would apply it more generally in any case. According to this view, a significant improvement to population health requires a fundamental reorganization of society. Another, these tell you some other terms that come up in this debate, and the argument is that without the um, reform of fundamental upstream factors, attention to downstream factors such as health care or even um, alterations in lifestyle, like more exercise or less smoking, won't work. According to this view, health is socially produced, or disease is socially produced, as it would more often be put. Now, more precise than general denunciations of capitalism, which is what much of this gets close to, are arguments about what it is that money, education, or power might actually accomplish for people's health. They provide the means to avoid and to cope with disease. They're general purpose tools that can be adapted to deal with disease in a wide variety of settings. 
Smoking is one example of the point. More educated people are less likely to smoke. What doctors like to call compliance is another. It's much easier to comply with a complicated regime for HIV or for diabetes if you're better educated, better off, and have the control over your own time to adapt to the regime. Higher status women are more likely to get mammograms. That's another example. More educated people assimilate more quickly and act on new health information, such as the Surgeon General's 1964 report on smoking. Even in the older world, say medieval Europe, where infectious disease was the main killer, not chronic disease, money could help. One example is Boccaccio's Decameron. It's a book of stories told to one another by rich people who'd fled Florence to avoid the Black Death in 1348. To avoid the resulting boredom, they did what rich people do everywhere when they don't have enough to occupy them. They sat around and talked about sex. The gradient seems much more robust than, and much more enduring than the pattern of disease. Money helped with the plague in Tuscany in the 14th century, and it helps with heart disease now. It is therefore a mistake to associate wealth and education with protection for specific diseases. They're general purpose tools, or at least the link with specific diseases cannot be the complete story. Now this point raises an issue of great importance. Are we really sure that we want to get rid of the gradient? Given the injustice, such a question may actually seem outrageous. But give, let, think of an example of a new discovery, a new technique, and new knowledge that improves health. Good examples, again, of the publication in 1964 of the first Surgeon General's report on smoking, or much earlier around the turn of the century, the turn of the last century, the application of the germ theory of disease and the understanding of the importance of hygiene. Suppose, too, that application of the new information requires some understanding, some behavior modification, or perhaps even some money. Then higher status people will get to it first, and health inequities will widen because the higher people will become better. Their health will improve more rapidly than that of the poorer status people. But this is a good thing. Um, more people are alive than before, and no one is actually any worse off than before. We must not get carried away with the idea that reducing health inequalities should be the central focus of health policy, except within the context of improving public health more generally. Well, maybe income doesn't work, and in order to make sound policy, we need to understand the mechanisms. It's when we come to designing policy that the difference between correlation and causation really matters. If you try to use a correlation, say, between income and health, to try to make health better by changing incomes, and income's really standing in for something else, then that policy isn't going to work. Now, here are three of the most important mechanisms that help account for the gradient, but do not rely on a direct causal link from money to health. Um, if the correlation comes about because healthier people earn more and people who are sick can't work or choose to retire earlier, then we should be thinking about not health insurance, but disability insurance or disability-linked social security payments or some form of income replacement when you are sick. The second argument is to do with health care. And this is what many people first think of when they meet the gradient. 
that rich people have superior health care than poor people, they're more likely to be insured, and they're better equipped to deal with the medical system. Um, here, money doesn't work directly, but it's really health care that affects health and money that affects health care. The last point is that health-related risky behaviors, such as a sedentary lifestyle, smoking, binge drinking, obesity, drug use, and unsafe sex, are all behaviors that increase the risk of mortality and are all, all are more common among the poor. Um, here's another illustration I have. Um, this is an old temperance poster, and it shows King Death in his party hat, presumably at Death's annual office holiday party, um, awarding Bacchus um, the first prize. Um, then as now, um, Bacchus almost certainly brought in more poor people um, than he did rich. Though perhaps nowadays, Bacchus might be given a close run um, by the god of tobacco, um, whoever that might be. Um, going back to the risk factors um, here, these three items here, which are sort of alternatives to a direct effect of income on health, there is a broad, although not, a broad, although not universal consensus, and it's certainly not necessarily true, that those three mechanisms, health to income, health care, and risky behaviors, are all important parts of the mortality story, but they cannot explain all of the relationship between social status and health. For example, in one of the most famous of the stories of the gradient, um, Sir Michael Marmot's work on, um, on Whitehall studies of civil servants, it is possible to look only at non-smokers and non-drinkers and to control for a full range of factors obtained through medical examination, like cholesterol, blood pressure, and so on. Doing so eliminates only about a fifth of the difference in mortality between the civil servants at the top of the hierarchy and those at the bottom. Similarly, gradients between health status, health and status exist in places where health care is free, as well as in Whitehall, where no one is poor and all have access to the same National Health Service. So let me go on here. Now, even if it is true um, that the causality flows from some measure of social status to health, it may not be income itself, but something else. Now, what else that might be is quite controversial and little understood. One element that almost everyone agrees is important is education. Although even here, there are skeptics who argue that the correlation between education and health comes from some third factor that affects both, self-control being often suggested. Yet the work of my colleague Adriana Yarasmuni has gone some way to suggest that at least part of this effect is directly causal from education to health. But here's something that sounds like it's income, but is not income, which is your rank in the income distribution. It might be your rank that matters, not actually your income. Or a closer related statement, it might be your income relative to someone else or to some other group. We all know the story of the professor, um, who for some reason is usually an economics professor, who cares not at all about his own salary, provided only that he makes at least $100 more than anyone else in his department. <laughs> now, it's hard to know what to do with rank, and it's hard to manipulate it experimentally, certainly among humans. But there are some very nice experiments with monkeys by Sheldon Cohen's group 
Among non-human primates, rank can be artificially manipulated and susceptibility to disease directly measured. Monkeys were placed in a group and allowed to rank themselves, which takes them about no time at all. The amount of food that each monkey got was the same. Um, Cold virus were then rubbed on their noses, and the high-ranked monkeys were more resistant, less likely to get the disease than the low-ranked monkeys. The groups of monkeys were then shuffled about so that different monkeys had different chances to be the top monkey. And once again, resistance associated with the monkey rank, not with individual monkeys. Remarkably, this experiment has been repeated on humans. Um, Students, um, students of course are always the people who get this sort of thing, um, were asked to report their own social standing on a social ladder. They were given a ladder with very high status people at the top and asked to rank themselves on this ladder. They were then injected with cold virus and locked locked up alone in a hotel room for a week. Um, I'm glad that it was not I who had to shepherd this through the human subjects clearance. But once again, the higher status people, the people who ranked themselves higher on the ladder, were less likely to develop cold symptoms in response to the injection. Now, the question is whether this tells us anything about money. Maybe so, to the extent that money buys rank and social status. Or maybe nothing at all. After all, rank in the animals is to do with social position. Indeed, if food corresponds to income, which is one parallel we might draw, Cohen's monkeys all had equal incomes. They didn't have different incomes at all. And more generally, if it's our relationships with others that are important for our health, they may have very little to do with the amount of money that we have. Now, this is to come back to the policy issue. Um, We really need to know what really matters if we're going to conduct policy. Improving education is a very different policy from redistributing income. Given the widespread agreement that education is good for your health, but there are contradictory results about income once we control for education. For example, in the work that we've been doing, if you look at individual data from the National Longitudinal Mortality Survey, the graph I showed you before, income and education appear to be separately protective. Each separately helps you stay healthy. And to me, at least, that makes a lot of sense. Education is associated with risky behavior, for example. Income protects you against the anxiety and stress of struggling to make ends meet. At the other end of the distribution, first-class travel involves a great deal of less wear and tear than economy. Yet when we compare the average health of people across different cities, those with more education on average are healthier. Cities where the population on average is better educated are healthier cities on average. But average income has no effect at all once you've controlled for the average education in the city, even though for the individual level, income seems to be separately protected. We don't understand why that should happen. Another issue is that income rank is very different from income itself. This may not be immediately obvious, but think about it for a minute. Suppose, for example, that the next administration in the U.S. decides to increase taxes at the top and increase benefits at the bottom. This would make the poor richer relative to the rich. But it is unlikely to change anyone's rank in the income distribution. If I'm richer than you before the increases in taxes, 
and taxes go up, I will still be richer than you after we've paid the tax, although the difference between us will be less. So we'll be brought closer together in terms of our income, but our relative ranks will be quite unchanged. So if health depends on rank, a squeezing together of the income redistribution will not have any effect on health at all. All right, well, suppose that in spite of all these arguments that it actually is income. Then the question is, will redistributing income from rich to the poor actually improve average health? The point is that we have to take into account that we're redistributing, not just giving money, and that the health of the rich falls just as the health of the poor rises. Now, this will have a net positive effect on health if the effect on the rich who are being hurt by this is less than the effect on the poor who are benefiting by this, which is probably the case from the curves that we saw before. So that seems to be okay. And then the economists come along and say, but you've forgotten about deadweight loss. Now, deadweight loss is frequently economists' only contribution to these sort of debates. Um, And no wonder it's called uh, the dismal science. The idea of deadweight loss, for those of the many of you here who are not economists, is that if you try to take a dollar from a rich person to give to a poor person, it costs more than a dollar to get that dollar. The rich will resist, sometimes literally with armed force, sometimes politically by using money to help elect representatives who will stop it. But even if they agree in principle to the higher taxes, they might work less hard in response to them, educate themselves less, and make for less to tax. Dead weight loss happens because anything that is taxed tends to shrink. So that for the dollar transferred, a dollar and a half, for example, might be lost. So it might actually be quite costly to increase population health through redistribution. But I don't want to sound like some economists who argue that because taxes cut dead weight loss, we should always be trying to lower them. That makes economists simply apologists for the rich. Because the poor not only have less money than the rest of us, but also worse health and shorter lives, the importance of redistribution is greater than we might have thought from their poverty alone. People at the bottom end of the income distribution are are in worse shape than they appear if we look only at their incomes. Nor does the argument for redistribution um, rest on health alone. All right, let me extend the argument now to a somewhat different set of issues. Because additional income affects the health of the rich less than the income of the poor, that's the curvature of the curves we've been seeing, we can expect more equal societies to be healthier on average. But there's an argument beyond that, which is that income inequality has a direct deleterious effect on the health of people who live in more unequal societies. According to this view, Everyone living in a more unequal society is sicker than they would otherwise be, rich and poor alike. Inequality is like pollution of the atmosphere. It's just bad to live with. Greater income inequality makes health worse for everyone, whether you're rich or poor. Now, let me just say a few words about what I mean by income inequality. It's a measure of the spread of incomes, measured proportionately and independently of average income. Giving everyone twice as much income has no effect on income inequality. Now, it's important to be careful with the various uses of inequality. When poor are less healthy than the rich, people sometimes say that income inequality is determining health. 
My usage would be that income inequality is determining health inequality, not the level of health. For example, a recent study of AIDS found good evidence that people with lower incomes were more likely to be HIV positive. The study is careful and convincing. Except that the abstract summarizes the research by claiming that income inequality is the fundamental cause of AIDS. That is perhaps a legitimate use of the English language, but the meaning of inequality is not the one I'm using here or that is standard among economists and sociologists. The way I would phrase it is that income determines health so that differences in income predict differences in health. By contrast, the direct inequality hypothesis that I'm about to discuss says that differences in income or how widely income is spread predicts the level of population health. Much of this work is associated with the British epidemiologist Richard Wilkinson. Um, Income inequality in this version is the central villain in the health story, not simply a consequence of the curvature of the Preston curves. Income um, is seen as the fundamental determinant of health in poor countries, income inequality as the fundamental determinant of health in rich countries. If this is so, then redistribution of income will make an important and direct contribution to population health, um, not just working indirectly because of the differential effects on the poor and the rich. This slide mentions the epidemiological transition, and I must just spend a second um, explaining what it is because it's an important part of the story. To do so, it's worth going back to a slide I showed you earlier, which is the set of Preston curves. Now, the epidemiological transition is the transition from a state in which the leading causes of death are infectious diseases, mainly among children, to the state where the leading causes of death are chronic conditions, such as cancer or heart disease, mainly among the elderly. Countries like the U.S. have long passed through the transition. But the countries on the left of this graph here, the poor ones at the bottom left, um, are still on the other side of the epidemiological transition. On the left, as I emphasized before, we can see how important income is to increasing life expectancy and how relatively unimportant income is um, on the right. Now, according to Wilkinson's story, the place of income among the rich countries is taken by income inequality. So you have this very neat dichotomy that among the poor countries it's income that matters, among the rich countries it's income inequality. And Wilkinson's idea is one of these great big-picture generalizations that has proven almost irresistible to the imagination, and it's close to having become the orthodoxy in the public health um, literature. Now, in Richard Wilkinson's new book, he discusses why we might expect inequality to hurt us. It's wonderfully called Mind the Gap. And let me give you some quotes with some commentary. He argues that societies in which relationships are structured by low-stress affiliative strategies which foster social solidarity versus, that's the good sign, versus societies which are characterized by much more stressful strategies of dominance, conflict, and submission. Um, I'll end the quote in a minute. But the vision here is one of a sort of lost collectivist paradise in which people are well integrated into communities that foster social solidarity on the one hand versus post-Thatcher Britain or modern U.S. in which competition and dominance rule and social solidarity no longer exists. 
Interestingly, this paradise lost of the collectivist left has much in common with the paradise lost of the religious right. Both are characterized by high levels of social capital, in one case through trades unions and in the other case through churches. But the big leap that Wilkinson makes, the really bold hypothesis that makes this so amenable to empirical analysis, is the last bit, if I resume the quote, which social strategy predominates is mainly determined by how equal or unequal a society is. Well, there's, if we think about this um, theoretically before I turn to the data, We've seen some of the evidence from the monkey studies. I'm sorry, let me come back to that. There's excellent evidence among humans um, on the role of anxiety and stress um, on health. Just to take one example, one of the best explanators of the gradient in the Whitehall studies is whether or not people have a sense of control um, at work. And if they don't, they have more anxiety, they have more stress, they get sicker. We've seen already that some of the examples from Cohen's study of rank and stress, rank um, and health among monkeys. There's other famous work by Robert Sapolsky um, in, on wild baboons in Kenya, um, which has begun to explore the biochemical pathways um, that support um, these links. So there's really not much question about whether unpleasant social structures can make their members sick. One of the examples I like to use is my high school. I had the misfortune to attend a classic unreformed British public school, very much like that featured in the movie If, if any of you have seen that, whose fame has subsequently been much increased by its most successful alumnus, the current British Prime Minister. This was an institution where rank was absolutely everything. Every Friday, a ranked list of students was posted not in accordance with academic performance, although that was certainly a factor, but by general degree of approval by the ultimate authorities in the school, who were not the teachers, but the school prefects. You were actually not allowed to talk to anyone more than five places away from you in the ranking. And those at the top could require those at the bottom to perform menial tasks for them. Obedience to these rules was enforced by a Baroque system of petty rules and not-so-petty punishments, including physical violence, which was frequently and apparently pleasurably inflicted. Now, I would not be the first to suggest that such a social structure was harmful to the mental and physical health of the people who inhabited it. And the harm had much to do with inequality, the inequality that was artificially created by the school yet it had absolutely nothing to do with income inequality. And that's an important distinction that I want to make, and one of the arguments I'm going to make, which is that I believe that inequality is important. I'm not sure that it's income inequality. Wilkinson has also presented a number of evolutionary arguments for the importance of inequality. Humans have spent most of their history as humans, as hunter-gatherers. No one knows exactly how much, but most estimates are larger than 90%. Without a way of storing food, you're going to have difficulty keeping some of your kill for tomorrow, or at least the day after tomorrow. Perhaps the only way to turn mammoth today into mammoth tomorrow is to share it with everyone else in your group and hope that they will do likewise tomorrow or the day after. 
Now, perhaps such considerations are part of the strictly observed egalitarian sharing of food that has been observed in all such groups. And then comes agriculture, which permits and indeed requires the constructions of hierarchic societies in which some people order others around, some get rich, and some get poor. These agricultural societies are productive because of the division of labor that they support, but there is a cost in terms of equality foregone which prevents health reaching its full potential. Similar stories are told about some infectious diseases, such as malaria, from which hunter-gatherers were probably immune. Indeed, malaria may not have existed during the hunter-gatherer period. With the concentration of people permitted by organized agriculture, such diseases could evolve into being. Agriculture makes people better off and likely healthier because of the better nutrition it supports, but the benefits do not come without costs. Now, as perhaps first noticed by Thomas McEwen, there's an extraordinary coincidence between the lifestyle that would be recommended to you by your physician and the lifestyle of hunter-gatherers. If you were a hunter-gatherer and you went for your annual physical, your doctor would be really pleased with you. He'd say, boy, you're doing great. That's exactly the way you ought to live. Now, the argument by Wilkinson is that your doctor missed the most important criterion that mimics the society of hunter-gatherers, which is you should go and live in an egalitarian, cooperative society instead of the one in which we live. Well, that's the theory. What about the empirical evidence? Now, much of the first empirical work, including Wilkinson's own, looked at life expectancy and income inequality across countries. But the data for doing this are really terrible. Um, Income inequality is something that's quite hard to measure. You need closely comparable surveys, and the ones that were originally used in this research were not that. And in fact, as we've sorted out the data, and we got better comparability, albeit for a limited range of countries, the life expectancy inequality correlation across the rich countries seems to have vanished. So, in fact, the attention has moved away from where it first started, which was among the rich countries looking at life expectancy, and has moved towards um, the internal organization um, within the United States. And here is another picture Um, which shows the 50 states of the United States, um, plus Washington, D.C. That's the outlier way up there. Um, The circles have a diameter proportional to the population of the area shown. The vertical axis shows the fraction of people dying. So we're measuring death up here. Now, this is actually expressed as a log odds of mortality, which makes the graph come out nicely. But all you really need to know about this is higher death rates, lower death rates. So good is up, down is bad. Along the bottom here, we have a standard measure of income inequality. In this case, the Gini coefficient. Um, And the Gini coefficient is, is a measure of the average distance that people's incomes are apart from one another over all society. So it's like I take the difference between me and you, and we average that over all pairs of people in the society, and we divide it by the mean. The genie is scaled in such a way that zero is when everybody has exactly the same, and one is when one person has everything um, and no one has anything else. And actual measures are somewhere in between. You can see the range for the U.S. about 0.34. This is in 1990. 
for New Hampshire, up to 0.48 for D.C., or if you don't allow D.C. as a state, about 0.45 um, for Louisiana. What this figure shows is what has now become a fairly famous correlation, um, which is that in places where income inequality, in states where income inequality is higher, um, death rates are higher. People die younger in places where there's a lot of income inequality. Now, one problem with using the state data is that there's only 50 or 51, if you allow DC. And it's, so it's not difficult to pick these graphs apart. And in fact, I imagine everybody in this room is beginning to do this, and they say, well, that all really depends on this point and that point, and I can easily knock that out. One of the easiest ways to think about knocking this down is to note that many or most of the bad places where you die young and there's a lot of income inequality are in the South. And so you can start telling stories about the South. Um, the South is different from the North. Um, racial composition in particular is very different in the South, and I'm going to come back to that. But to get away from this 50-point thing, much of the work um, that we've been doing more recently has looked at cities um, rather than at states more technically with what are called metropolitan statistical areas. And there are 287 metropolitan statistical areas in the U.S. that you can follow from one census to the other and look at characteristics of population and of death rates. Now, oh, excuse me. Um, if I redo this graph, and I'm saving you one more graph, for cities, instead of 51 points, we'd have 287 points, but otherwise the scatter is the same. And once again, there's a strong positive association between income inequality on the one hand and early death and mortality on the other hand. Now, what is all this about? Well, it turns out that race is a really important part of what's going on um, in these situations. Um, this is work that I'm currently undertaking um, with a postdoc here, Darren Lubotsky. Um, for reasons that we do not fully understand is that mortality among African Americans is higher than mortality among whites. Um, African Americans also have lower incomes on average than whites. So that in places where there are a large fraction of blacks, income inequality will be high and so will be average mortality. There's essentially a sort of mechanical correlation between fraction black and overall mortality rate. But it turns out that that is not the explanation for the picture I showed you, nor for the corresponding picture at the city level. If we draw these pictures for white mortality alone and for black mortality alone, we still find the associations. They're not as strong, but they're still there, and they're statistically significant. So we got a result here which says that both whites and blacks die younger in states and cities um, where inequality is high. But then it turns out it's actually not to do with inequality at all. It's to do still with the fraction black. So what we find is that both white and black mortality rates are higher in states and cities where the fraction, the fraction of blacks is higher. Now, we don't know what that is. The one thing we know it's not is income inequality, because when you try income inequality and fraction black at the same time, income inequality has no effect at all once you control for the fraction black. 
Sorry. My computer sometimes does this. Um, we spent quite a lot of time over the last few years. Okay, we have a problem. No, okay. Actually, trying to see why it is that race matters. Um, the, we have a lot of negative results, which is we've tried a lot of things, like is it resources? Is it because some places are richer than others? No, it's not. Is it because there are better health services or there's more money spelt in health in some cities than others? Well, that's important, but it doesn't explain the effect of race um, on health. It's robust to controlling for education. It doesn't matter if you allow for the different levels of education across the different cities. The same is true for other controls like air pollution, housing quality, a um, whole bunch of things that we've tried. Many of those are important for mortality in their own right, but they don't explain away why it is that both whites and die, both blacks and whites, die younger in places where the fraction black is higher. It's also true um, within different regions of the U.S., so it's not just a north-south contrast. And it's also true um, for different age groups in the population. So it's not like homicide or it's not cardiac disease because it's true for infant mortality and it's true for the elderly. The one clue that we have is this last thing, which is quite disturbing in its own right, which is that the effects of racial composition on mortality work only in cities that are not segregated. When whites and blacks live apart in the city, the fraction of black has no effect either on black health or on white health. It's only um, in places that are not segregated. Now, I'm giving you a puzzle here. I don't know the answer to it. But one thing it doesn't mean is that in the narrow sense, Wilkinson is wrong. Income inequality is not the key to population health. We've seen already the cross-country results have gone away. This, this within-U.S. result um, also goes away um, once you add these additional controls. But, of course, he may be right in a much more general and important sense, certainly about the importance of social arrangements for population health. And, indeed, some have argued um, that our results reflect the poisonous state of race relations in the United States. Racism and racial discrimination um, are bad for the health of those who discriminate as well as for those who are discriminated against. It is also worth noting that there is no similar relationship between health and income inequality across Canadian provinces or cities, where race and race relations are very different from the U.S., the importance of race is certainly consistent with an interpretation that implicates broader notions of inequality, here the inequality that characterizes so many aspects of race relationships in the United States. What about inequality over time? Let me deal with this relatively quickly, but I'm sure it will have occurred to many of you that over the last 50 years we've seen an amazing change in the United States, which is a huge increase in income inequality. Now, once again, if income inequality were important for population health, we ought to be able to see this reflected in the health statistics. Um, in fact, if we can split the period since 1950 really into two halves, one in which there was very little increase in income inequality, and then afterwards there was a lot, and in the first half there was a lot of growth in median income, and then after that really very little. 
Now, if income promotes health and income inequality is a health hazard, then they should work not only over space, but also over time. Now, here's a picture on the top of median real family incomes in the United States. And you can see that from the 50s up to about 1970s, um, you get this rapid growth. And after that, a period of um, not so much, um, really stagnation for quite a long period, though that was broken um, in the last long economic boom, which has just come to an end. The bottom picture shows a couple of measures of the Gini coefficient. Let me, for the moment, just focus on the yellow one in the interest of time. And you can see that the Gini coefficient, which is the measure of income inequality, does sort of exactly the opposite of what mean income does or median income does, that nothing much happens until the early 1970s, and then it sort of takes off. Now, there's an interesting thing, which is this break um, in the um, series here between 92 and 93. The U.S. Census Bureau is probably the most careful um, and best survey organization in the world, but this reflects just a breakdown in the data collection procedure, a change in procedures between 92 and 93, which really broke the series. There's a huge increase in inequality there, and no one really believes it's real anymore. So how much harder is it to do international comparisons? Well, here's the male mortality rates. Female mortality rates look very similar. And the timing is just about as exactly wrong as it could possibly be if you think it's income and income inequality that are actually determining health. Um, these are for middle-aged men. Um, the picture is somewhat similar for older men. It's different for people much younger, and I'll come to that in a minute. But what you can see is in the place when real income was doing great, when income inequality was not growing, nothing very much was happening to mortality. And then all of a sudden, when things economically start going wrong for a 25-year period, we do just great um, on mortality. There's this very rapid decline um, in mortality rates. That's true for women as well as for men. And at the bottom here, this increase that we see for those people, that's all AIDS. That's driven by AIDS. And I think not too many people actually claim that um, the quote I made earlier that it is income inequality that's driving that. Of course, the decline in male mortality over this period that you see in these graphs is really uh, more than anything else to do with the decline in um, heart disease or the decline in mortality from heart disease. And that, of course, is a widely contested um, topic too. But technological change is certainly... Um, the new techniques for dealing with heart disease, new drugs, new procedures are certainly one of the leading candidates for explaining that decline in mortality. In fact, in work that Chris Paxson and I have been doing very recently, we've been comparing these patterns with comparable patterns in Britain. And in Britain, the income growth patterns are very different. The inequality patterns are very similar. But what you see is the mortality patterns, or at least the trends in mortality in Britain and the U.S. are very similar, except that everything seems to happen in the U.S. about three to four years before it happens in Britain. Once again, we would tend to attribute that um, to the slower diffusion of technology um, in Britain in a centralized medical system where um, innovations have to be improved um, centrally. Just summarizing the inequality thing, you might then get to the point where you say, okay, perhaps inequality doesn't matter. Well, certainly I would argue, and I'd agree with that statement, in the sense that I don't think income inequality is the primarily determinant of population health. 
On the other hand, income inequality is not the only inequality, and there are very other very important inequalities, social inequalities, that we can think about. Two of the most obvious ones, since there's health-related work on both, are political and gender inequalities. There is, for instance, very good work by the British historian Simon Strader um, on the um, decline in mortality in the last years of the 19th century in Britain. And much of this he attributes to the cleaning up of the cities. And the cleaning up of the cities was delayed until there was a greater degree um, of political equality, which followed the Reform Act um, at the end of the century, which which enfranchised working men, though not working women. And that increase in the franchise enabled coalitions to be built between working men and the old displaced aristocrats who could then work together and help clean up the cities and change the water supply, which previously had been used almost entirely for industrial purposes to produce fresh, clean drinking water for people in their homes. And that um, was one of the reasons there was a mortality decline. So this is an issue where political action, where a decline in political inequality plausibly led to an increase in population health. Um, many of you will also know the recent work of Amartya Sen and his co-author Jean Drez on women's education in India and the arguments there that the equalization of education by gender, of extending women's education, um, has enormous positive public health effects and private health effects um, through hygiene, through decrease in infant mortality, and so on. All right, well, let me try to pull all of this, um, some of the threads together. And some of these things are non-controversial and some of them are more controversial. Health care is not the only way to think about health. The social environment matters, though, of course, that statement is so bland that really no one could disagree with it. But exactly what is it in the social environment and how do we go about improving health? Should we see economic policy as the prime um, tool of improving public health, or should we see us as much more traditional, the healthcare system as being the primary determinant of public health? Well, in good academic fashion, um, let me list some questions that we don't know the answer to. We don't really understand the precise role of income. Well, we don't know what it is about income that improves health, though we have some clues. Is there a role for income apart from education, which is one of the issues I raised earlier? And then the question I sort of started with, which is whether income redistribution will improve health, remains controversial and unknown. I will actually argue in a minute that it's also not very important. Um, But before I come to the final conclusion, I want to show you one more graph here. And this graph is something that I thought of only in the last few days, and that because um, it, I spent a day um, with Michael Marmot, who runs the Whitehall Studies, trying to argue out our respective positions as an economist and as an epidemiologist. And this graph, it turned out, separated us completely. So we thought if it separated us, it would be quite useful to see whether it separated people in general. What this is a story about is there's a new technology comes along, or new knowledge. There's a new discovery which is good for public health. Now, you might think of the Surgeon General's report of 64. Suddenly, we didn't know before, we may have suspected it, but it wasn't official, and now it's official that smoking is really bad for your health. So this new information is out there, and people can do what they like with it. So what will happen, 
as usually happens with these innovations, and it happened not just with the Surgeon General's help, but with the germ theory of disease and so on, is that the people at the top of the income distribution, that's the rich guys up here, will take much more advantage of it earlier. So very quickly, their mortality rate falls. The guys at the bottom are not as well educated. They don't have as much money. This invention might need money in the first instance. So their mortality goes down, but it doesn't go down by anything like as much. So what has happened here in the language of the literature is health inequalities have increased. So what was unequal before is now much more unequal. Now the question is, if you had to choose which of those curves you would like, which society you want to live in, which one would you pick? Now, economists, I think, would be essentially unanimous in picking the yellow line, the after one. Now, of course, I shouldn't say that because economists are never unanimous about anything, just not in their nature. Um, But I think you'd get pretty close with this. And the economist's argument is everybody is better off in the yellow situation than in the red situation. Um, It's true that some people have benefited by only a little and other people have benefited by a lot. But everybody in all social classes, in all income groups, has their life expectancy increased and now has a lower chance of dying before. That's something we want. That's a really good thing. The epidemiologist, Michael Marmot, I say to him, well, which one would you choose? He said, I don't want that choice. I said, well, what do you want? He said, I would demand a better choice in which the gains are more equally um, equally distributed. I say, well, you can't have a better choice. What about this one? This is the Surgeon General's report in 1964. He said, well, if you force me, I'll take the red one. The red one is better than the yellow one. So the social inequalities from the epidemiological point of view and from the point of view of much of this literature, of which Michael Marmot is almost certainly the most intelligent and distinguished um, practitioner, um, is that we'd be better with lower health inequalities even if it costs lives. Now, I'm an economist when push comes to shove, and, for instance, I do not think it would have been good public policy to suppress the Surgeon General's report, Um, though, of course, it would have made health inequalities less than it would otherwise have been. Well, let me conclude um, with some lessons. Um, The first point is the one I've just been talking about, that health inequalities are not the main point. So let me say what I think is the main point. Education, it seems to me, is a really good candidate for us to work on here. That education makes people more productive, it helps them earn more, and it increases their life expectancy. That seems to be true everywhere, all around the world. The other big lesson is one I've referred to a couple of times, and let me say it again which is well-being, human welfare, what we're ultimately concerned with, is broader than either income, which is what economists usually work with, and it's also broader than health, which is what doctors usually think it is. Now, each group, because they have their own relatively narrow conception of well-being, tend not to discuss some of the really important issues that cut across. Now, Where these become important is that when we think about um, some of the policies, both income and health matters, and this needs to be kept in mind at all time. 
Vic Fuchs, for example, has recently warned about making the elderly health rich and consumption poor by extending entitlements to ever more expensive pharmaceuticals, which in the end will be funded, at least in part, out of Social Security payments. He talks about people being able to get MRIs, but not being able to afford a new mattress, or getting expensive um, reconstructive surgery, but by being unable to afford an airfare to go to a grandchild's wedding. Um, These are not trade-offs that we want to take lightly. Much the same holds um, for well-meaning attempts to improve the health of the poor, for example, by raising taxes on cigarettes, or at least raising the prices of cigarettes, because no one likes to call it a tax, to finance a tobacco settlement whose proceeds benefit the rich at the expense of the poor. Now, not understanding that well-being is broader than either income or health promotes poor public policy. The gradient should make us more willing to redistribute income, not in an effort to, redist- not in an effort to reduce health inequalities. That should not be in our goal but in order to improve the lives of those who are doubly deprived. The relevance of the relationship between income and health is not simply that economic policy might be an effective instrument of public health, let alone that we should use income redistribution to reduce the magnitude of health differences between the rich and the poor. The appropriate use of both health policy and economic policy is to improve human well-being. And improving the well-being of the poor is more urgent than improving the well-being of the rich. The argument for redistributing income does not depend on whether it improves the health of the poor, and certainly not on whether it narrows health differentials. But the fact that rich people are healthier and poor people less healthy strengthens the argument for any policy that will relieve deprivation, whether it's the deprivation of poverty or the deprivation of sickness. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, yes, and I'm glad you asked that question. This, this is the issue of, for those of you who didn't hear, that the only quantitative measure of health I referred to here was mortality um, or life expectancy, and there are clearly other important measures of health. Um, we've done a lot of our work with mortality because it turns out that um, the measurement issues for mortality ultimately rest on whether people are alive or dead, and there's pretty much agreement on that measurement. <laughs> Um, When you come to measure sickness um, or morbidity, everything becomes much, much more controversial. And actually, I mean, in health research, one of the philosopher's stones would be to find some method of assessing the health status of someone who's basically healthy, 
We have some idea to do it at the end of life when people are failing, and we can count things that they can't do anymore. But basically, for someone who's in midlife, is apparently healthy, um, there's really no very good way of doing that. Now, that said, there are measures like self-reported health status. You ask people whether to rank their health on a scale from 1 to 5, and that turns out to be extremely useful. Um, you can also count disabilities of various sorts. You can count people who are sick in various ways. And the general patterns I've been talking about here work for all of those. And, in fact, the gradient in disability of anything seems to be stronger even than the gradient in mortality. Yes. Um, <laughs> sorry, the question there is the, the example I showed at the very end, which showed this thing tipping over when there's a new technology, isn't that a short-run phenomenon? And isn't it the case that in the long run the gradient will return? Well, it, partly the answer to that is yes. And one example would be the germ theory of disease and the application of hygiene, where, you know, everybody learned it in the end and it worked out. But it's not been true for the Surgeon General's report, for example. So that, you know, what happened was there was this very quick um, sort of quitting smoking by the rich, but that's never really happened um, right through the income distribution. So there still remains a much bigger gradient in cigarette smoking than there was prior to 1964. And I don't think we understand that. I mean, it's a very good research topic, which is why is it that the, the poor um, smoke much more heavily than the rich? They certainly know the risks, and most of the survey work suggests that they even overstate the risks, not understate the risks. So it's not simply a matter of not understanding um, it's something to do with maybe smoking being good for you in some broader sense. It may hurt your health, but it may deliver other psychic benefits, which when you're very poor are very important. And that's another reason why we have to think very hard about not, you know, financing the state of Tennessee based on cigarette taxes, for example. Yes, please. Right. Right. Now, this is not so in the first set of data. Right. Right. Now, in particular, <coughs> if for the 1900 point, without the rest of the data, I would draw a straight line. Right. So, my uh, question is, would the, if you analyze within each year, say 1900, and the final scatter of the data, and they'll tell you the story, and then further on, that if you translate from 1900 and every 30 years, and as time progresses, different factors have come in. Right. No, I agree with that, that, that um, different factors have come into play, and Preston actually argued that. But I'm, I'm not quite sure of the point. I mean, in Preston's original article, he did not connect up the 1900 points because there were too few of them. And maybe that was the right thing to do, but this was a recent example of it I could find, and I just put that on the picture. But it's clear that income is only one of the factors. Um, and there's, you know, it's clear that public health has moved these curves a lot over time. And if you fit the 1900 curve to the 1990 data, it wouldn't fit very well um, because it's moved up and it's moved up unevenly. 
that there is a similarity relationship from year to year. And one knows that relationship that all all answers know. I think that's a somewhat misleading. Um well I don't know. I, I mean, the points are there, and all the data is there, and you can look at them. And I think there's a pretty strong relationship there, but um, and nothing's hinging on that. You know, it's very important to realize that at the top, there are countries who are very rich and have very low life. Well, not very low, but much lower than you would expect. So we could just leave the curves out of this altogether and leave the points there. Yes, please. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something we haven't done any work on. It's, this is the role of social support networks and how important they are and the difficulty of doing that across countries. There's very good evidence on the importance of social support networks. And if I didn't work that in, it was just for lack of time and not for lack of importance. But the one thing I would say, if social support networks are really important, it's not clear that income turns, how income turns into that. Um, though you can imagine it might, but not in any very direct way. Yeah. Yes, please. Although you presented a lot of interesting data, I thought the one that really stuck out, stuck out as it was dynamite was the data on integrated and segregated black and white communities. And I just wonder what you would say to some uh, fossil segregationist that says, um, well, those who arrived all along, black and white are meant to live separately. They did longer than they usually come up and ask me that question at the end of the lecture, um, once the audience has gone away, <laughs> um, which is, you know, this is an argument for apartheid, and um, that's actually one of the more mild solutions that people have come and proposed to me. Um, I think we don't understand this. And, I mean, I think this interpretation that it's just simply segregation per se is only one of a thousand interpretations that you could possibly think of. Um, Let me talk about one I haven't talked about. For instance, migration is tremendously important, and it's actually quite hard to model because migration um, out of an area is very selective on both race and health. So you could easily think of migration patterns that would generate something that looks like this. And, you know, I, I've just simply tried. I get a lot of flack when I talk about this work for saying, okay, what is it? You know, tell us what it is. Why do you leave us hanging in the air here? And I say, well, I'm sorry. You know, I'm an empiricist. Um, I find these relationships. Um, I think it's important for them to be in the public domain, but I'm not going to tell you what they are because I really don't know. And, you know, we could get a result next week, which changes completely what I think. So I, I really can't answer that question, and I don't really want to speculate. No, no, I'm not saying that. No, it's this is what we call an interaction effect as opposed to a main effect. So the main effect is in cities where the fraction of black is high, um, people die younger. Okay, that effect doesn't operate when the cities are perfectly segregated. Okay, so it, it's a effect that moderates an effect rather than a direct effect in its own right. Yes, please. Yes, 
The, the question is, I don't know the answer to it, so I might as well repeat the question. <laughs> the, the question is, do women um, live longer than men because they behave better? Is that... <laughs> Sorry, they have better health behaviors. They do what they're told, and they go and get their annual checkups, and they worry about themselves more. Yeah? Right. I don't think so, really, because two reasons. I mean, one is I, I've become much less skeptical, but if you read this epidemiological literature, one of the things that strikes a layperson, you know, right between the eyes when you first come into it is they don't believe in health care at all. They really think it's one of these second-order things that really doesn't have any effect on anything. Um, I, don't, I, I don't believe that, but I don't think it's anything like important enough to explain this enormous mortality difference, which you find all around the world, and you find it historically, and you find it at all ages and times. And, you know, it's just, I think it's something much deeper um, than health care or current social arrangements. But it's a nice example to look at, because people always want to talk about eliminating health inequalities. And I say, okay, you know, should we not admit women to hospitals when they're sick? You know, should we maltreat women in order to, you know, we just, you know, give favor to men? You know, the best doctors treat men, the worst doctors treat women, you know. It's a social view. I'm not sure it's very well attested in the public health literature that annual medical visits actually prolong your life um, very much. Um, it's certainly clear that antenatal visits um, for women are a good idea um, for their own health and that of their unborn child. Um, but there's much less good evidence on annual physicals. Um, Lee. Including women. Yeah. But why is that? Why is that? Because they go to hospital more often? No. Yeah, I don't disagree with that, and, and it was consistent with what I said, that it's a biological or much deeper difference than social arrangements or whether you go to clinics or not. Yeah. Sorry, back. Right. I don't know the answer to that. Um, the question was whether the interaction effect I was talking about holds for infant mortality. Um, there may be someone here who knows the answer for that. Um, no. Okay, the person I thought might know doesn't know, so um, we, we don't know the answer to that. Um, and, but we will get the answer to that in due course. Yeah.
It's also not acting like making the goal of income equality or bringing this kind of socialistic relationship between the three. Right. Um, I, I didn't quite say what you said you said, what you said I said. You said, did I um, think of education as a cure for health inequalities? Yeah, but I, I actually, I think of education as being good for well-being. Okay? I think, I mean, there, there are some policies which would almost certainly, I mean, education is one of these things where if you do good things to education, it will probably increase inequality. So, for example, if you imagine a policy that makes all schools more effective, you know, all we wave a magic wand and teachers are all twice as good as they were before, then because different people have different years of schooling, they'll benefit from that in different amounts, and that will widen social inequality. Now, that seems to me another example where widening social inequality is actually a good thing, because, you know, everyone's gone to a better school, everyone's had a better teacher for the years they were in school, everybody's better off, let's do it and let's not be strung up on the pure inequalities mantra. I mean, inequality has a role, but not when it gets in the way of making everybody better off. So I, I don't think of improving education as a way of limiting health inequality. Thanks. Thank you. Um, Before I thank Angus for that really stimulating lecture, I would just like to announce that the next lecture in this series is going to be held on March the 7th, and it will be given by uh, uh, Professor Stu Smith from the Department of Physics on why antimatter disappeared after the Big Bang. So I hope I will see all of you there then. And I would like all of us uh, to once again thank Angus for a really wonderful lecture. Thank you.